Well, we don't necessarily suspect the parents right away, but we want to clear them right away. He's actually building an alibi. I mean, he, he sounds like a reasonably intelligent offender. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor, and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today across the country is... Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. And as Jim said, we are in distant locations. I am in the XG Productions Atlanta office. Hi, Jim. And I am in the LA division. So... Uh, it's great to talk to you, Francie, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, Jim. And it seems to me that we have the entire country, maybe even the whole hemisphere, covered. Oh, we, we, yep, pretty much do. At least, <laughs> at least this continent. Um, so I think you should be interviewing me today. What a chance to cross-examine Jim Clemente! It is truly a New Year's did I say cross-examine? Francie, it's amazing how you go right to cross-examine. Now, what about direct examination? What about a friendly witness? What's oh, up with that? Yeah. I think all our listeners will accept that you can be a hostile witness at time, and I'd like to treat you that way. Well, I don't know what you're talking about, but whatever. Have at it. All right, I'm ready. Okay, so I'm very excited that we're digging into the Jim Clemente case files, a little bit nervous because your case files tend to be, if possible, even worse than mine. So do you have a case in mind to talk about today? I do. I do. And where were you in your storied career when this case came in? Well, um, I had already been a prosecutor in the prosecutor's office for a total of five years. And then I had been an FBI agent for 15 years when this case came in. Wow. So you were what we would call seasoned for sure. I was seasoned, well seasoned. And I was at this point at least five years into being an FBI profiler. So you were stationed or whatever you call it, your duty location, your duty station was the uh, BAU in Quantico, Virginia, right? Yes, it was. And we're a unique division. Uh, we were in SERG, Critical Incident Response Group. And it's a division of the FBI, unlike any other, in that it covers the entire nation and the world. So 
we responded to any critical incident um, across the nation or around the world that we were called into. Um, and we were co-housed with the hostage rescue team, the hostage negotiators, the rapid deployment unit, violent criminal apprehension program, any entity in the FBI that needed to be called on for a critical incident. And that can be any major case or child abduction or any of the things that you see the characters on Criminal Minds running around after. That's pretty much what CERT did. That's pretty much any kind of major case. It is. Uh, so I've been there for five years at this time, and I was on the Crimes Against Children unit in the Behavioral Analysis Unit, and that was BAU-3, and that would be where I would play out the rest of my career. So I have a question for you, Jim, before you start on this case. I'm curious because I know how I feel about it, but I wonder how you felt about it. Did you have ever any, not ever, I guess, but routinely, did you feel sort of dread when a case came in? I mean, working crimes against children, it's always going to be something bad. Yeah, um, it is. I mean, you never actually, you know, relax about when a new case comes in, but you also didn't have any question about motivation. And you knew right away that it was critical and many times life-threatening. So you just responded. You're just there. You're doing it. And where were you when this particular case came in? Was it a kind of a normal day? Was it weekend? Uh, it was actually a Monday, February 4th, 2002. And it was a normal day as far as I can remember. I was definitely busy. I did a lot of consulting on cases. I did a lot of traveling on cases and I did a lot of training across the country and around the world. So I was constantly doing stuff from point A to point B. I was sometimes in three different cities a week and it was a really busy time. But at this point, I was actually in the office at the BAU in Quantico, Virginia. And it was sort of late morning, early afternoon, I believe, when I got a call. And can you set the scene for us a little bit, Jim? I think probably everyone who listens to this podcast has seen Criminal Minds and kind of the BAU bullpen. How true to life is that? Do you have windows? Is it a basement? Where are you working? <laughs> well, actually, at one point when I was in the BAU, and I think this could have been during that time, I had a window office. And it kind of looked out over a beautiful parking lot. It was it was just great. Um, <laughs> but later on, uh, we kind of reshuffled some people, and and I chose sort of an inner office because of it was a larger size, and I like to keep all my case files out on my desk, out on the shelves, and so forth. And so it just it afforded me the opportunity to um, to organize my office the way I like it. There is no bullpen in the BAU the way that they have it on Criminal Minds. Everybody has their own office, and the round table is actually not round. It's actually horseshoe-shaped, and that's so we can get a lot more people around it than a round table. And it's kind of the highest tech room in the BAU, so it does have the technology. It has smart boards and smart TVs and 
a good phone system that we can link a whole bunch of people talking at once and built-in speakers into the table and, and that kind of stuff. So it does have some technology, but it's just not a round table. All right. Well, that's good to know. So you're in your office in the BAU on a Monday morning and you get a call. What happened? Who was it? I got a call from the coordinator in the San Diego division, I believe. And I was told that they have a report of a missing girl, seven-year-old girl. And of course, that's always, you know, a difficult thing. So the first thing I did was grab some colleagues and move to our round table room and put them on speaker. And first thing I asked them for was a map of the area. And what we noticed was that this was sort of an upper middle class neighborhood. Uh, When I say upper middle class for the area, that's pretty much um, fairly wealthy people for the rest of the country. It was a, a nice neighborhood. But one of the things that I noticed right from the start was that there's basically one way in and one way out from the main road. And in order to get to this house where this girl was in bed that night and when her parents cooked breakfast and called her down for breakfast, there was no answer. They went up and looked and she was not there. So she went missing from her own home in this quiet suburban neighborhood and a very low crime neighborhood. And so I counted the turns that would be necessary from the main road, something very basic. And you had to take nine to 11 turns to get to this house. Whereas people at that point immediately started, you know, looking for sex offenders and looking for people, you know, in across the county and the, and the area. I said, the person who did this lives in this neighborhood because the chances of somebody making all those turns to get to this house and randomly finding this girl who was vulnerable at that time of night, I just thought were astronomically low. So I thought it's someone who knows her. I asked a few questions, for example, you know, she went to school in the neighborhood. When she played, she didn't play out on the street in front of the house. They had a six foot wall behind their house. And that's where her and her brothers played in the backyard. The family were together. Mother and father were together, although we'll find out some more information about them down the road. So remind me to tell you about that. But it just seemed like the all-American upper middle class family, and she was an extremely low risk victim. So that- Can we back up for a second? Yeah, sure. So you get a call about a seven-year-old who's missing, whose parents report her missing. Of course, what's flying through my mind is I'm sure the same thing that went through yours at the time was all the cases that you had to have been aware of at the time of parents killing their children. They have to, I mean, they're almost always the first immediate, or maybe always the first immediate suspects because of access and because of uh, living arrangements. And just because frankly, as you are more aware than anyone else, child abduction is quite rare um, when it's especially stranger abduction. So what made you jump to, okay, had to be someone in the neighborhood versus it was her parents? Well, We don't necessarily suspect the parents right away, but we want to clear them right away. So we want to look at their alibis and what's going on. And so we do look into that. But 
we also have to understand that, as you know, of the kids who are abducted and killed, 44% are killed in the first hour, 73% in the first three hours, 99% in the first 24 hours. So we don't have time to just say, oh, we'll only look at one aspect, which is let's clear the parents first. We have to bifurcate the investigation, look in the home and look outside the home at the exact same time. Otherwise, this child's life is extremely at risk. And so you got a call late morning, you said. So that means it was barely a few hours into this investigation then. It was right in the beginning of the investigation. And we have a child abduction rapid deployment team. So immediately when a child is reported missing, abducted, we we dispatched that team. The local team goes there. So the coordinator for that team on the on the West Coast basically reached out to me right away. So they were on site and called me, you know, I think basically when they were en route, as soon as they got the basic information. So I was getting up to speed right away and I wanted to get certain things done before I got on a plane and flew out there. Okay. So you asked for a map and you noticed that this child's house was deep within this neighborhood and it would be very difficult for this to be kind of a random drive-by opportunity the way the, say, much more recent um, Dylan and Shasta Groney case was. Right. And so what happened was we get the information that the father had woken up because their dog had kind of been whining a little bit in the room. And uh, so he went to let the dog out early in the morning, like, you know, sometime between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. And when he went downstairs, he noticed that the sliding glass door to the family room was open like six or nine inches. You know, he was like, who the hell left this open? And he let the dog out. The dog came back in and he went back to bed. Of course, Um, he didn't think to himself, oh, someone's been abducted. Correct. They have an alarm system in their home. Apparently, it wasn't either that door was not part of the alarm system or the alarm system was not on. And remind me to get back to the alarm system later, okay? But there's one other thing about this dog. This was a designer dog. Uh, They had the dog's larynx removed so that he could not bark, (gasps) so that he was not going to offend the neighbors and so forth. So he couldn't bark. Well, or alert the family of anything. Remember, we'll get back to the dog, too. So we have the alarm, right? The parent and the dog. So we want to make sure we get back to all those topics when, as they reveal themselves to me. Okay. So obviously, we want to put the parents on polygraphs, and we want to uh, interview the other two children. Well, the girl's name was Danielle, and she had two slightly older brothers. And they were both in the home that night. And so they were able to corroborate what the parents said about what went on, at least while they were awake. And so, Jim, you said that you weren't one of the first things to be done was polygraph the parents and interview the children. Do you have any idea whether the children were going to be interviewed by forensic interviewers or did they just not think that was necessary because maybe they were a little bit well, older? Well, I don't think they were interviewed by forensic interviewers. I think they were interviewed on the scene by FBI and local police. I think it happened dynamically right then and there. Because of the time, it's not something you want to wait till you can get some them to a child advocacy center or something like that. So they were interviewed, and basically I got two of my colleagues to 
sort of step in and consult on the case while I got on a plane with another colleague and we flew out there. So we wanted to get out there. We don't have the G5 or G6 like they do on Criminal Minds. We go, we fly commercial. <laughs> we literally sped up to, um, I believe it was National Airport and flew out within a couple of hours. So by the time we land, the people on the ground at the BAU briefed us on developments that had happened since then. And so what what were the developments? Well, one of the things was that the parents had kind of a unique relationship and uh, they were actually swingers, it turns out. And that swingers, swingers, could you define that for those probably millennials who might not know the term? Well, basically, they had sort of an open relationship and they would bring other people into that relationship. They would have other people come and they would have sex together with the third or fourth person and or one of or the other of them would have sex separately with another person. So there was a lot of you know, sort of sexual activity going on in that house. And that actually increased the li- risk level a fair amount because obviously you're bringing in other people into the home and they were also frequently smoking pot. Well, and you're also bringing people into the home who, like the parents, are sexually um, adventurous, I guess. And that concerns me. Yeah, it can uh, and it should. Um, so it was kind of a was a little bit of alarming situation. I believe both parents, though, agreed to take a polygraph, and they they passed. They did not have any indications that they were deceptive about one Danielle being abducted and two being involved in it in any way. Well, I think Jim, that's one of the hardest things for 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 me and for a lot of people to understand. I think it's really hard to put yourselves in the shoes of someone whose child is kidnapped from their house and they don't even wake up and know it. I mean, you have some very famous cases that have happened, Polly Class, Elizabeth Smart, and others that have happened exactly like that. But it always, to me, seems almost fantastical. That is very difficult to believe that an intruder can get in take a child and get out all unnoticed. You're absolutely right. So it's a high risk thing for an offender to do. So they have to be very sophisticated, skilled and experienced to get that accomplished and not have anybody know that they were in the house. Starting a healthy routine and sticking to it are two very different things. Inevitably, we all skimp on that full night of sleep or skip a workout or maybe two or brush our teeth with a tired old toothbrush. Yeah, we're not perfect and we can do better. Quip is a better electric toothbrush that will help us. For an effective clean that's gentle on your sensitive gums, Quip has sensitive sonic vibrations. This is because most people brush too hard and some electric toothbrushes are just too abrasive. I love the multi-use cover. It works as a stand, it mounts to mirrors, and it slides over your bristles to pack and protect your quip on the go. As much as I travel, I desperately need that kind of cover and that kind of protection for my toothbrush in hotels and other places. Quip is easy to travel with, it's sleek, and it makes me remember to brush my teeth for the right length of time. 
That's why I love Quip and why over 1 million happy, healthy mouths do too. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash best case right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash best case. So what we found out along the lines of this swinging activity was that the father was home that night with the two boys and Danielle, and the mother went out to this bar called Dad's Bar and Grill. And at this place, she was hanging out with a bunch of friends, and she brought some of the friends home with her. And one woman apparently went upstairs and got into bed with Dad, and they fooled around. And the rest of them were downstairs smoking pot and whatever. And then late night, early morning, 2 a.m. about, they all left and mom went into bed, uh, never having checked whether the sons or Danielle were safe and sound. So that, again, was a very risky environment to be in. So obviously, our next set of leads were, let's track down these people and find out you know, who they are, what their backgrounds are, any of them sex offenders, you know, so on and so forth. And do they have good alibis? So that's where the leads were going at that point. And the timing seems quite convenient with the end of whatever this sexual swinging is with the dog activity and the sliding glass door all seems sort of conveniently pointing in one direction to me. Yes. So I get on the ground and the first thing I want to do is I go out, you know, stand in front of the house. By the way, by this time, it was basically a JonBenet Ramsey scene. Uh, There were hundreds of media trucks and reporters just swarming this neighborhood. But I went out and stood in front of the house and looked at the situation. The backyard was gated with a six-foot cinder block wall around the entire perimeter, very secure. And I looked and I saw that neighbors on either side and three neighbors in the back uh, had views into the backyard. And I said, I need to look at all these families right here. Anybody who has a view into that backyard who will know who could look at this kid and develop fantasies about her and then wait for an opportunity when she's vulnerable and take advantage of that opportunity. So we started looking at all the neighbors and four out of the five neighbors uh, were there and one neighbor was not at his home. And so obviously that we, we started interviewing those neighbors and I put a big star next to the guy who is not home because that's a risk factor. I mean, somebody who gets involved in this may leave the area until things quiet down. And so we put a star on this guy's name. His name was David and he lived next door. And so- So Jim, one of the things, sorry to interrupt, but one of the things that really strikes me is the level of activity here. I mean, You're talking about not, and I don't just mean media who obviously have come because a seven-year-old girl has presumably been abducted, but you're talking about polygraphs and interviews of the parents and interviews of the children and interviews of the neighbors and canvassing the neighborhood and looking at maps and presumably checking traffic cameras, all sorts of things, all this activity is going on. How many people are actively involved in an investigation like this right then? Well, lots. I mean, you know, anywhere between 50 and 100 law enforcement officers are involved and neighborhood community groups, they're involved too. There's a lot going on. 
We have our, the behavioral analysis unit developed the child abduction response plan. We worked very, very diligently on putting together best practices and advising law enforcement what to do in the first minutes, the first hour, every hour after that, and the first day, the first week, the first month after an abduction. So we were following that plan to the letter and following any leads that came up along the guidelines. So we had interviewed four out of the five neighbors that could look into this backyard. And we were very impressed that everybody was, you know, normal and did not abduct Danielle. This fifth person, though, was gone. We talked to other neighbors who said that early that morning, he had pulled his big 35 or 40 foot RV in front of the house. You're not allowed to park in the neighborhood. He has to park it remotely and then bring it in to the neighborhood when he's going to use it. And he had like four wheelers on trailers and things like that. He was that kind of guy who often went out to the desert and and rode around on four wheelers and things like that. So did he have kids? Yes, he had kids. Um, He was divorced, but he had a 17 or 18 year old son and I think a 19 year old daughter. And Because because all those toys, Jim, suggest to me somebody who's trying to uh, attract kids, but I digress. But attract kids, not seven year olds, but he has a 17 or just turning 18-year-old son and a 19-year-old daughter. And they live with their mom, but they visit often and they often go out RVing with their dad and go out to the desert and to the beach with him and, and that kind of stuff. Apparently, they have a close relationship and everything's great that way. But it still bothers me that he just coincidentally, on a Monday morning, decides to drive off out to the desert. So one of the things that the neighbor said was, What's weird is this guy is meticulous. He cuts his grass like every week at the same time, to the same height. You know, everything is meticulous. He always puts things away. But this morning when he filled the water tank up in the RV, he left the hose out across the front yard. This is a very meticulous neighborhood. Uh, If anybody that's listening hasn't ever lived like in the Orange County, San Diego area, um, they may not know how beautiful lawns are kept up and how everything is landscaped and, and just wonderful. And this neighborhood was no exception. And this was a, an anomaly for him to have left the hose across the front yard, leaning out to the RV. So talking to this guy in depth, I found out that he said that this guy bought out a box of provisions and loaded it into the RV and then took off. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. And what about what time, like, was this the same day you arrived that you guys had, because this sounds like there's been an awful lot of information that you've already gleaned. Is it still the same day of her abduction? This is all, yeah, we're all real time here. Yes, it happened earlier that day. And so that happened earlier in the morning and he was gone and unreachable at this point. Anyway, we tried to contact his family and we did and and we interviewed the kids, you know, the adult kids and the ex-wife and that sort of seemed copacetic, but it still sort of raised some red flags in my mind. So what I did was plan for when this guy comes back to interview him and set out, you know, an APB on his RV to see if uh, any state troopers or police officers could find him, you know, and tell him that we want to talk to him. So that was going on and we're doing, uh, you know, we're continuing the investigation. And one of the things that we then do is we sit down and we interview the parents again, separately. 
And why is that? Just in case our listeners haven't heard you talk about this before, Jim, talk about why it's important to interview people who could be suspects or one of whom could be a suspect separately. Because we don't want them to hear what the other party is saying and conform their testimony to the other party. Or we don't want them to collude together if they're covering up together. So we separate them and then we test their stories against each other. And what we found was some really interesting information. And we're asking them at this point about Danielle and, you know, her exposure to outside people. And so she, the mother said, well, last week I took Danielle around to sell Girl Scout cookies. We just went around the neighborhood. We went around this big block that we live on. We went to all the houses. We went this way and we went all the way around to that way. And, you know, so we knocked on all the doors and she sold cookies and, you know, we went into a couple of homes and, you know, there was nothing really strange except that when we got to the house right next door to us, the last house, it might have been the second to last house. I think the house right between them was vacant. And this guy, David, answered the door, invited us in, bought cookies. And while he was doing that, he said, hey, it was great seeing you at dad's bar last week. Are you going to be out again this weekend? The mother said, no, my husband is taking the boys skiing this weekend to the mountains. So I'll be home alone with Danielle. And then he said, well, why don't you give me your number? Because, you know, I host adult parties here at my swimming pool, just so you know. And she said, he looked at me really creepy. So I wrote down my husband's name and wrote down his phone number and gave it to the guy and left. Interesting. Okay. Very interesting. So fast forward a week from this encounter with this guy. And this is the night before the mom is out at dad's bar. Now she had been out the week before and David had been there. She had, mom had been there with a bunch of her friends and they were dancing and stuff. And David bought them all a round of drinks and they took the drinks and they were having fun. And then David, they were out dancing on the dance floor and David wanted to dance with the mom. And she was like, no, nah, I'm not having this. So she just kind of walked away. And then that next day or the day after mom was out selling cookies with Danielle and then a week later, she, she told him she wasn't going to be at dad's bar, but she actually was there. And he bought them all rounds of drinks again. And this time mom is like, no, that's okay. We don't need drinks. We're good. So that sounds like two rejections from mom to Right. Dad. And he leaves the bar. So, yeah, it, it was, you know, definitely something of note and we had to look at. So mom then tells us all this information and we now are really looking to find this guy to talk to him, find out what's going on in his life. And lo and behold, all the media sees parted and he pulls up to his front yard in his RV. Is it still the same day? It's the next day. Next day. Okay. Yeah. So he's been away from his house for what, like 24 hours? Yeah. You know, something like that. Yeah. It might be even longer than that. Mm -hmm. And of course, Danielle has not turned up and we all are aware of those statistics. It's it's kind of grim. So because there was so much media around, they immediately swarmed on him. And what we were able to do, though, is immediately watch his, they interviewed him. And we were able to watch that 
basically live. So the medium got the media got to him before you could. Yeah, because we weren't necessarily waiting at the house mm-hmm. for him to come back, but some cops were there. You know, we had left the cop with the family and and they notified us. So we were on the way back, but we were able to watch the interview. And basically what happened was they want to interview him and he's standing in front of his house, maybe in front of his garage. And they're about to interview him. And he says, wait, hold on a minute. He goes inside, he gets a baseball cap, puts it, puts it on and comes back out. And he says, does this look good? What? Very weird. Right, right. Exactly. And then, you know, he's interviewed and he's all concerned about Danielle being missing and so on and so forth. So that was an interesting thing. So we immediately send two of the um, child abduction rapid deployment team members to interview him. And they bring police officers and evidence response teams people. And we ask for a consent search. And he agreed. And he told us that he drove, you know, out to the desert. He drove down to the beach. He was all over the place. He drove about 300 miles in that time. Just by himself, he says. Yes. And like he went out to the desert and he got stuck in the sand. So he decided, ah, the hell with this and went to the beach instead. Mm -hmm. That's what he said. So obviously we want to go and dig up that desert area and uh, any place along the way. But that's what he said. And we would later find out that he stopped at a gas station and made a big deal of paying this kid five bucks to go in and buy him a newspaper, which, of course, would have the date right on it Mm -hmm. and, you know, something else and get a receipt. And he bought gas there, you know, so that he would prove where he was, which was about 115 miles away. And then he drives out to the desert and drives into the soft sand about a quarter of a mile and gets stuck and has to get, call a tow truck to get him towed out of there. That sounds purposeful. Again, it does sound something like that, right? So we get consent to search his house. We get consent to search the RV. When we we got consent to search the house, I told the ERT people, I said, look, that dog may not bark, but if that dog is like a normal dog that dog will shed and if that dog sheds danielle loved this dog she's going to bring that dog hair to wherever she goes so they walk in and they find in his laundry room there's all this bedding piled up on the dryer having already been washed and dried and there's stuff going in the washer and dryer right now and i said collect that dryer vent because if she was in that house and had contact with any of those clothes she probably bought dog hair from her dog and so they collected that dryer vent and sure enough they would find dog hairs from danielle's dog there they also found two empty bottles of bleach and you know clean other cleaning fluids around less of an excuse but i can't help thinking with my prosecutor's eyes about dog hair and the cookies and there could be an explanation for that dog's hair to be in his house because of the cookie visit Right. The cookie visit. You're right. Which was a five minute visit to the foyer of the house. She never, obviously never went on his bed in the master bedroom. So the volume of the hair and the fact that clearly what had just been washed and dried was the linens from the master bedroom. It may not be perfect evidence, Francie, but it certainly is good circumstantial evidence. Well, it's great circumstantial evidence. And what it really is, is evidence that points at him right now in the investigation. And so you can focus on him now. Right. So we do focus on him. And what we do is we get a warrant to search the RV and we ship it off to search it. And what we find is a receipt for a laundromat 
go to the laundromat, and we recover the clothes he dropped off. And he dropped off sheets or a blanket and a jacket. On the jacket, they found what looked like blood. And they would test it, and they would find that it was Danielle's blood. Oh, Jim. Yeah. This this story does not seem like it's going to have a happy ending. It does not have a happy ending. And they would also find a handprint of Danielle on the wall next to the bed in the RV. So he's definitely the main suspect um, at this point. He's arrested. Unfortunately, the detectives who questioned him stepped way out of line. Oh, no. And no statements that he made could ever be used in a court of law because they were way out of line. And in fact, I don't even believe they ended up testifying when this case went to trial. Oh, Jim, that's a terrible but important object lesson. Yeah. One day turned into two days, turned into a week, turned into two weeks. There are all these law enforcement officers and citizens groups out searching, including me and my colleague. And we get a call that, and I I have to admit, I think it was 30 miles away from the home. Um, that a body was found, and it was fairly decomposed, and it was later identified as Danielle. And it was an anomaly because offenders don't normally go 30 miles to dispose of a body. But when you take into account the fact that, one, he had her in a transportation modality, right, the RV, Mm -hmm. and that he drove 300 miles in that 24-hour period, then it makes sense because 30 miles, he went 30 miles away, but then he went on to do a 300 mile trip. He could distance himself from that. He was, you know, it's sort of similar to trucker serial killers who pick up a prostitute at one truck stop, drive hundreds of miles and throw the body out in a different state. It's, it was similar to that kind of dynamic. Well, and it seems also, Jim, like he's actually building an alibi. I mean, he, he sounds like a reasonably intelligent offender in the sense that he's got cleaning supplies. He's dropping stuff at the laundromat. He's, you know, um, dropping her a long way. Right. Funny you should mention that. He is very intelligent and sophisticated. And, in fact, he's a patent holder. Do you know what he has patents on? I, cleaning supplies? I don't know. Well, how about the control system for home security systems? Oh, my God. Really? Really. And as you reminded me earlier, the parents had an alarm system. Yeah, they did. And the father, you know, when he woke up because of the dog and found the door open, probably just figured, oh, you know, one of, the, one of our guests or one of the kids left the door open or something and didn't think of it, anything of it. But it could very well have been that David was able to disable the security system because he knew how they worked. So what happened from that point forward was the body was autopsied. They could not determine if she was sexually assaulted, but it was probable. And we got a search warrant for his computer. And what I had said in the search warrant after David was that this guy was probably sexually diverse. In other words, he was sexually attracted to both adults and children, and that if that were the case, his pornography collection would reflect that. And typically, sexually diverse people will have categorized pornography 
and, and they will have multiple sexual attractions that are exhibited in this pornography. And sure enough, that's exactly what we found on his computer. And one of the most chilling things that we found on his computer, other than child pornography, which he would then later blame on his 17 turning 18 year old son. Of course uh, he Yeah. Uh, he had a collection of anime, Japanese anime cartoons. And one of them was this situation in which this creepy guy was hanging out in the bushes. This little schoolgirl was walking by and he abducts and rapes and kills this girl. That's the anime he had. And that anime can be so violent. Right. And so I, you know, immediately, you know, brought it to the attention of law enforcement there and and they kind of played it off. It's not child pornography. You can't prosecute him for that. And I was like, this is the motive. This is fantasy material for exactly mm-hmm. what happened. And I brought it right to the district attorney and they, in fact, used it as proof of motive in the trial. He did go to trial. He maintained his innocence, um, despite the fact that uh, there was overwhelming evidence that he had abducted and murdered Danielle. Well, I mean, her blood was in his RV on the walls by the bed, right? Well, the blood was on the floor, on his jacket, and I think in the bathroom, and her handprint was on the wall. Okay, that is what I consider to be overwhelming evidence. When you also ca- you, you also combine that with the dog hairs in his house, the patent on a system that could have disarmed the alarm, the anime, the child pornography, uh, his flight um, the morning that she was discovered abducted. I mean, all these things just pile up um, one after the other and scream, he's guilty. That's right. Well, that's what the jury thought. And on August 2nd, 2002, He was convicted of kidnapping, possession of child pornography, and first-degree murder. And I know you and I don't agree on this topic, Jim, but what was the penalty? Please tell me it was the death sentence. Well, I guess you're going to be happy Uh, it was the death sentence. I am happy, although I'd be happier if it was a different state. California hasn't executed anyone since like 1974 or something. So he's sitting there, you know, eating and breathing and working out at the gym and watching cable, assuming he hasn't died in prison since then anyway. I don't believe he has. In fact, he's continuing to maintain his innocence. And of course, he has followers and people who, you know, are fighting for his cause and so forth and saying he's innocent and he was railroaded. There was exemplary work by hundreds of police officers and detectives, but there were two that unfortunately went way too far. My recollection is that they used the death penalty to threaten his life um, and may not have even given him Miranda, you know, just all sorts of unprofessional conduct that ended up meaning that none of his statements could be used in the trial. And basically, fortunately, there was an overwhelming case and everything came together. And by the way, when they did the search of his house, if you go up to the master bedroom and you go into the bathroom and you open the window, you'll see that the screen covering that window is pushed out in exactly the shape of a man's head. So he was leaning into the screen so much so that he could see into the backyard where Danielle played that his face left an impression in the screen. And one of the neighbors that we interviewed said, oh, that guy is so creepy. One day I was walking my dog and he walked up to me and he said, oh, aren't you the one that runs on her treadmill with your little puppy? And she was like, what? And she just walked away because she does that at night 
in her own bedroom. How did he know that? And two of the neighbors that were actually character witnesses for him testified. Wait, wait, he had character witnesses? Two of the neighbors, yes, he did. They testified that he was a great guy and he babysat their children. <gasps> he never did anything to them. But wait, we found and we showed them the videos he took surreptitiously out his window into their bathroom window taking videos of them while they were in the bathroom. And they still testified for him? Yes. And one of his nieces, I believe, came forward later and said that when she was a small girl, Mm. that he came into her room and molested her. Of course. Apparently, she reported it, and her parents did nothing about it. Oh, God. So this is a terribly harrowing case, Jim. Just bad upon worse upon worse. I hope those two detectives were fired. And I hope the people who testified as character witnesses on his behalf, I'm just going to say it, burn in hell because they should. That's just disgusting that they would Well, it's just ignorance. It's complete and total ignorance. And it's also, if they believe that he did this to Danielle, then they have to face the fact that he could have done something to their kids. And I think they wanted to turn a blind eye to That's that. That's disgusting. So, Jim, I have to ask you, was this a best or a worst case? Yeah, it was definitely a worst case. I mean, it's the worst possible scenario in a child abduction case. And that is, it ended in the death of the victim. But fortunately, her body was recovered and sufficient evidence was found to identify, try, and convict the offender so he'll never do that again to another child. So overall, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just one of the cases that haunts me because poor Danielle really didn't have a chance and, you know, she didn't get to live her life and she was a sweet little girl and just got her life robbed from her and violently stolen from her. So it'll always bother me. Well, Tim, I just, want to pay tribute to you and all of your law enforcement colleagues who worked and are still working these kinds of cases today. The emotional burden and baggage that law enforcement carries from these kinds of cases is tremendous. And I think it's something that uh, I hope our listeners never have to experience for themselves in any way, because it is very difficult to live with these images that you have to see on offenders' computers, the images of the child in life and in death. And so I just want to say thank you for all the work that you did, and especially to our law enforcement uh, colleagues and friends who are still working these kinds of cases. We pay tribute to you as well. Yeah, definitely. And I know you can relate. Um, So I'm thanking you as well for the work that you did and continue to do. Well, thanks for telling us about this, Jim. I hope there's lessons in it for our listeners and also especially for our law enforcement listeners about policies, procedures, um, professional conduct and ethics and how important they are and how they can lead to disaster. And we never want that to happen. Amen. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of Best Case, Worst Case. Thank you for listening. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, LA. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. 
and hosted by Wondery. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Stories about child sexual abuse can make us feel powerless. But the good news is that there are organizations working to prevent abuse and keep kids safe. Darkness to Light and their Stewards of Children Prevention Training has trained more than 1.4 million adults to protect, recognize, and react responsibly to child sexual abuse. But there's more work to do. And with their 4 million by 2020 goal, Darkness to Light is setting their sights on training 4 million adults around the country to keep kids safe. By donating to Darkness to Light, you can help reach this goal that will make communities across the country safer places for kids. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org today to give. That's www.d2l.org. Oh,